0: Welcome to Sound & Vision,
1: conversations with
2: contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound & Vision, Brian Alfred.
1: Sound & Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and weekend classes, and a distinguished lecture series that's free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two week intensive courses designed to build momentum and expand one's creative boundaries. The school welcomes participants for the Fall 2019 marathons in drawing and sculpture, which begin September 3rd. Apply online today at nyss.org Sound and Vision is sponsored by Baron Arts. Baron Arts is a Brooklyn-based designer and builder of the best stretcher frames, art panels, and floater frames in New York and the US. They have many styles and options from standard strainers to mechanical expansion stretchers to fully custom shapes determined by each client. They also stretch the finest canvases and linens to your exact specifications and can even crate and ship your order or your finished paintings, anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. Bernarts has almost 30 years' experience building custom structures for artists like Elizabeth Murray, Sean Scully, Kehinde Wiley, Joan Snyder, Catherine Bernhardt, and thousands of others. I have a show opening next month at Miles McHenry and made a large diptych for it. They had to match perfectly and Bernarts did the job to perfection. From custom to standard, big projects and small, they remain the most reasonably priced custom shop around and they take great pride in offering the finest work at affordable prices for the entire artist community. Your artwork should be on the finest structures available, built by Baron Arts. Find out more at BaronArts.com. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York that is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. I've been using golden paints and mediums for 20 years, and I swear by it. The pigments, the quality, The usability, is that a word? Anyway, the best stuff out there. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. High Rises and Double Vision Images of New York is an exhibition of my own work that will be opening the 5th of September at 525 West 22nd Street at Miles McHenry Gallery and will be on view through 5th of October 2019. There will be an opening reception on the 5th of September from 5.30pm to 7.30pm. The exhibition is accompanied by a catalog featuring an essay by Pack Pobrick, and I've also done a collaboration with Grim Ales, the artwork for a new beer that they're releasing that will be available at the opening, and a exclusive collaboration with Topo Designs on a tote bag for the show that will be available in a very limited quantity, At the opening, so please stop by the opening and check out the show at Miles McHenry Gallery, the 5th of September through the 5th of October. Joe Fife is a painter and art critic based in New York City. He received his BFA from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia in 1976. He has published his writing on art for the past 20 years in publications such as Art in America, Art Forum, and Hyperallergic. Recent solo shows include Natalie Carr Gallery, Saison and Benetier in Luxembourg, Lovas in Munich, Gallery Christian Lehert in Köln, White Columns in New York, amongst many others. He's at group shows at 56 Henry, Halsey McKay, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Pablo's Birthday, Gallery Zercher, the Everson Museum, and many more. Awards include the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Gwendolyn Knight Award, a Fulbright, the Paula krasner Award, a Guggenheim, a McDowell Fellowship, a Yaddo Fellowship, a Gottlieb Award, and many others. He's a tenured professor at Pratt, and he's given countless talks and panel discussions, and has contributed greatly to the world of art through his work and his writing. Joe stopped by my studio for a talk about music, words, Baudelaire, Tony Conrad, acting on impulses, the time it takes to resolve work and much more. Here's our conversation. That's a good sign if you hear this the drink. I love when you're listening to a podcast and someone cracks a a can of sparkling water or something or a beer and you can hear it. So you're born and raised in Cheers. New York City. Cheers. <laughs> um is that correct? You were born in New York City? I was born um,
2: in the deep south of New York City, below the Mason-Dixon line. Yes, below the Mason-Dixon line.
1: Where does that line fall?
2: Uh, right when you get off the Staten Island Ferry.
1: Oh, that's it. I was born in
2: Great Kills. Well, I, I don't even know where Great Kills
1: is. It's below the Mason-Dixon line in yeah, New York City. I'm yeah. a I'm a Yankee. <laughs> I'm actually I'm a new a new New Yorker, so I don't even. I'm not born and raised, so. Well, I mean, I haven't been
2: there since since I was in grade school. I went you to, never go back. Um, there was a few um, a few old uh, second cousins around yeah. after we moved away, but um, I mean, I went back for a few funerals over the years, but mm-hmm. that's about it. Um, you know, I was a uh, I was a Catholic schoolboy on Staten Island, and then we moved to rural New Jersey. Uh, what part? Near Clinton. Is that off eighty? It's dead west, so it's just about to Pennsylvania. And uh, you know, Staten Island at the time was Catholic and Italian and Irish, and uh, where and New Jersey where we moved was pretty waspy yeah you know i mean there were lots of um white clabbered protestant churches of all yeah kinds um was it culture shock um, no because um it was it was it was far enough away so it was actually this kind of like sort of One part of it was just rural in the sense that there was chicken farms. On the other hand, there were horse farms. There were lots of um, um, quietly domestic um, couples on, you know, antique farms who who were men, you know. The two vice principals in my high school lived together, even though it was barely mentioned. Yeah. and uh, Dave Dellinger lived down the road from where I lived, um, who was one of the Chicago Eight. Right. Um,
1: An infamous name.
2: Mm-hmm. So there was, there was um, you know, there was a kind of artistic, bohemian, backwoods element to the. Oh, you know, um, um, Gary Keene lived out there. Yeah, you know who he is? I don't. He was in the early, um, he was in uh, When Attitudes Become Form, a uh, kind of post-minimalist uh, um, sculptor who was in the sculpture department at Rutgers for many years.
1: So he was born there, or that's where he was That's based? where he lived. Oh, I, yeah. I
2: I went to, his daughter went to my high school a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, Is this far from
1: New Hope? No, it's not that far from because, New Hope. It's, you know, a county,
2: it's a county across the river from New Hope. Okay. Because
1: that's a very artsy. There's culture
2: there. Um, well, yeah. I don't know what exactly. I guess it was kind of like rural. There were put it this way. There was a rural bohemian
1: element. Yeah. Uh, even in the '60s, it's um, funny where those communities end up shaking out to. You know, it's like go figure that. You know, I've been to places in Pennsylvania that are. They call it Pennsylvania for a reason.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there was also. Um, the kind of northern extension of Appalachia that right. came through, the upper part of the county as well, and you know, um, um, certain interbred communities yeah. and things like that. It was a lot of different things. The last I heard, though, is that um, you know they're they're doing cotillions at my high school now, which really, yeah, <laughs> big um, change. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm not really in touch. I'm and I, I, a number, a lot of the people that I, I I went to high school with that I'm, I am still in touch with. They were all out in Oregon or something. Yeah, you know, they've moved on. Um, but you know, I've um, I've had so much history since that time.
1: Right. Well, were your but was um, your creative path in life formed? Early in that, any you know, in those early stages, or was it something you found later? I mean, were your parents creative, or were they? My mother was um, a very
2: dedicated amateur painter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were around it. Yeah, thing. yeah. It was. It was. Um, it was part of the of her value system. Right. Um, and she always took lessons. She she went to Flemington, the this place called the. Um, Flemington Studio of Art Mm -hmm. um, and took lessons when I was in high school and she was painting when I was in grade school. Like
1: representational landscape or figure painting. All of that. Yeah.
2: Right and um, you know we always we had this place in the Adirondacks that we were always escaping to winter and summer and Mm -hmm. year-round and you know, there was there was always like a few stone chimneys in the landscape where a house used to be that burned down. Oh, yeah. I always remember her painting a landscape with a stone chimney <laughs> in it, um, burned down house. Yeah, 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 Um And uh, so, you know, and I, I mean, I took I took some art classes in high school, but um, you know, I remember my younger sisters who didn't end up going into that um, Mm -hmm. taking taking art lessons in grade school on a Saturday and coming home with these drawings where they learned how to like make flesh tones and things like that and I remember at the time not being interested um I was just interested in kind of playing out my own fantasies in relation to my art making but I wasn't I wasn't really interested in lessons and um I mean generally uh as far as growing up goes, um, it was always it was always there. As I was always interested, you know. I mean, I got my mother to take me to the Modern when I was in seventh grade. Um, when I was fifteen, um, I took the bus in specifically to see the the Paul Clay show at the Guggenheim. You nice. know, yeah. um, I mean. And when I was 16, I was taking the bus in to the Fillmore East. But, uh, you know, I was also, um, you know, I I knew a little bit about modern art. Um, But it was never, you know, by the time I finished high school, um, I really didn't want to do anything.
1: Uh, Were you into music, though? Because I feel like most kids are into music. Well sure, I mean I went to Woodstock, yeah <laughs> um the Fillmore
2: yeah, yeah, and I had friends that were in bands and and uh um I also um never made it to slugs, really, yeah, I never made it to slugs. I made it to Fillmore recently, I never made it to slugs, which I regret years later, um I got to know um one of the uh, the the owners a bit mm-hmm. um and we had a project where we were going to do an oral history of slugs. And it's just just never Jerry, I can't remember his last name now um it's just sort of one of those projects that just yeah. kind of fizzled out, but um
1: imagine a roster that came through those doors oh you know. oh yeah, yeah,
2: um, and um i I remember I had one or two friends older than me in high school that used to go to slugs yeah. um but i it's I didn't I didn't really have um, I had a I had a, a shorter leash than a lot of my friends in mm-hmm. high school, so I got to do a lot of things, but uh, I couldn't disappear for the weekend
1: in the East Village and not right. it not be known. Yeah. Um well, it might be for the best. Well, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Well it's amazing these days, you know, with the tracking and keeping track of everything and I'm so jealous of my parents because, you know, they could just say, all right, be back by the end of the day. There was, um, there was
2: one time when I was 16, I just sort of was fed up and I, I took off to the East Village and spent the night on Avenue C in some crazy person's apartment with a bunch of kids. And, um, that was a
1: very rough night and, uh, I thought you were going to say the best night of my life. No, 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 no. That was a tough night. Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, we all got, like, stoned and somebody threatened somebody with a knife. Somebody lit a firecracker in this apartment. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody brought some food in at three in the morning. And, yeah. Um, the whole thing was just... Um, um, it was a little scary. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I... I um yeah you know, I, I i went to the East Village a lot in the sixties um,
1: during the you know in the evening i didn 't usually spend the night right um, but you were seeing night culture in a a very kind of like you know energetic time I would uh, say.
2: well there was an, there was a, there was a, there was a lot going on that I was aware of but um, I mean, I, I was 16 and I, I, I wasn't able to really participate in, yeah. you know... Um.
1: Did that plant the seed for, okay, I'm coming back here? Um. You know what I mean? That kind of gave you the taste of like, okay, as you got a little older, you thought, well, I'm moving back here to, to be creative?
2: Well, the thing that... that where I've, I really found out what was going on in New York is the last year I was on Staten Island, I was in eighth grade, I had a paper route. Mm-hmm. And... um that was when New York magazine was the the Sunday magazine for the Herald Tribune. Mm-hmm. And it was it was great. And uh they had these they had this big spread on on Bob Dylan and uh I remember reading about the 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 Kutcher brothers, um um I think it was Richard Goldstein was writing a lot about underground film. Mm-hmm. Uh there was an article on the skulls, um, the collectors, um and, in general, I got this idea about what was going on you know across across the bay yeah um, so when I was in high school, even we had moved you know a good hour and a half or so away, I was already aware of that, and I was trying to go in there as much as i could and um uh, yeah, that went on for most of high school i was mm-hmm. you know i had I was paying attention to that, but at the same time um you know, I finished high school in 1970, and the East Village had suddenly gotten really dangerous and bad. Mm-hmm. And um, it suddenly became very unattractive. Everything that had been going on all through the the, the previous years was, wasn't so interesting. And, uh, I mean, I moved up to Boston for a while. I didn't go to college right away. I moved up to Boston for a while, and um, then I moved back to... Rural New Jersey, and um, I uh, worked for my father's business, which I hated, and uh, somehow um, I got them to to send me to art school. Um, and, fully, and it was almost right? like, yeah, it was almost like a default um, uh, thing. It's yeah. like, well, what well, what are you doing with your life? I said, well, you know, I'd really like to kind of go to art school. <laughs> And uh I it was very half hearted. Mm-hmm. And um The thing that was interesting about it, well, the thing that happened was by, by the middle of the first year I was thrilled because um I had made this decision about what to do with my life and uh it, it it seemed to me to be the right decision. I was really learning something that I wanted to learn, which yeah. was it was just kind of like a big surprise i didn't i didn't know what to expect but right. but um this just sort of came out of the blue. this is great I really like this I could do this I'm glad I did this <laughs> it was really interesting yeah you know um and then of course um there's 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 nothing very unusual about my story. Um, (laughs) um, You know, I sort of like went into a slump for a little bit in the second year, and then uh, I got into it more, you know. um, And uh, I immediately wanted to move to New York when I was finished. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um,
1: I moved I went up there a year or so after. Um, Did you have professors who were kind of encouraging that path and who were inspiring or was it more Um, of like, I just got to finish this, get out of here and go back to New York where things happen?
2: No, no. I, I I liked my professors. Um, um, my first painting teacher was Dora Staffel, who is, who was, um, Rudy Staffel, the ceramicist's Mm -hmm. wife and the grandmother of Annabeth Marks, who is now a New York artist. And, um, uh, there was so she was my first painting teacher, and she was also um, um, a Buddhist who um, you know was involved in the Naropa Institute. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had had Mark Rothko in grade school, and then had Gustin in graduate school, and went to the Hans Hoffman School. So I was getting. Um, I was getting information only once removed from right. from those sources. And uh also with this kind of Buddhist twist on the thing. But she was a she was a very good uh sophomore painting teacher. Yeah. And um then there was um a guy named Larry Day who I got to be very close with who um was the kind of well the the best way to characterize him is when when um, Harold Bloom went to the galleries or the museums he went with Larry and they discussed things mm-hmm. you know Larry was very um, erudite yeah and uh, the thing about him was he was very good at at not staying in painting per se but was able to move um, through different disciplines and you know, sort of connect them. Yeah. There's a... Um, in, the, in the introduction to Bloom's... Um, uh, what's that called? The Western Canon, I think. Um, he talks about standing in front of uh, Titian's fling of Marseilles with the artist Larry Day and Day commenting, doesn't this remind you of the final scene in Lear? <laughs> And that's that's Larry. Yeah. That's sort of like what he would do. He would make those kinds of connections.
1: And so you were getting nuggets of wisdom from him.
2: Well, you know, I, I visited him, uh, I guess, in the latter part of the 80s, and I hadn't seen him since the mid-70s or something. Yeah. And um, I thought, gee, this guy thinks like me. And then I realized, well, this is the guy that formed your thinking. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Um, and then, you know, then there were, um, there were um, a number of other artists there at the time who, if I didn't have them directly for classes, I sort of knew about them or heard what they were. Like Cynthia Carlson was um, a teacher of mine who was, um, uh, she was showing a lot in New York at the time. Um, she was very good friends with Ree Morton, mm-hmm. who was teaching there right um, and uh, Raphael Ferrer was teaching there, who was also um i think he had just been in the in the the Whitney biennial and so there was you know and there was people coming through there um you know Agnes Martin had started showing again, and mm-hmm. she spoke up at penn and you know there was five art schools that were um Sort of in a certain amount of conversation at the time in the seventies you know um, yeah. i remember I, I John Cage spoke it more mm-hmm. um, you know William T. Wiley, so there was a lot of uh, um, a lot of of uh, um, it was like a big- can- it was like it was like Oxford where there was like you know where there's different colleges and Um, if you knew what was going on, you could treat all the other art schools as just another college on the Philadelphia art campus and go to the the talks there, Um, you know. um,
1: What were you making at this time? Like, what was, or was it more assignment-based in art school, or were you, you know, when you were, were you focused in painting?
2: Well, the second year, the reason I was so miserable is I was taking everything. I was taking printmaking, I was taking photography, I was taking painting and uh, printmaking, and I was just a mess. Uh, there was no um, there was no real center to it, and uh, my friends were all taking Doris. Yeah. So the next year, I switched over to painting, and then I just pretty much stayed there.
1: Yeah. Um and was were you working abstract representationally or more assignment based at that point?
2: I think that we worked from the model and you know flowers and things like that
1: Still and, um
2: yeah 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 yeah, and then um probably the next two years you were supposed to develop your own ideas yeah. and um I did that to a certain extent um and um but I was I was I never I was never an abstract painter um I wasn't an abstract painter until I was in my 40s Mhm <laughs> Um I don't I don't even really think of my career before I was in my 40s um I think my career is maybe 20 years old Yeah
1: <laughs> when you when you moved so after Philly Did you, you moved back directly to New York, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then was it just, I mean, were you compelled at that point of like, okay, now I want to make work, show the work, get in dialogue with these other artists or what was your pro, you know what I mean? Or were you a little more like, I'm going to ease into this or a little less self-conscious about the process or how did it work? Because what year is that, that you're moving back? Uh, I moved back in 77. So the city at that point is a little different than it was, you know? You mean than it is now? Well, no, than it was when you were, you know, in the 60s or the early 70s. You know, as far as the art the art world is concerned, I imagine there's a lot of change going on at that point.
2: Well, I don't really know what the art world was like in the 60s in New York. Yeah. You know, I mean, in the 70s, you know, when I moved there... Um, there were some galleries on West Broadway and some galleries uptown. And um, there, um, you know, there was Dia on, well, at the time, it wasn't Dia. It was Heiner Friedrich on West Broadway. Mm-hmm. And there were amazing shows there. There was like Andy Warhol's Shadows. There was Blinky Palermo's Times of Day. There was um, Twombly's, um, was it 60 Days at Ilium? Um I mean there was one incredible show after another. Yeah. Um I guess that was, you know, 79, 80, 81 somewhere in there. Um were you living? I was in Tribeca. Yeah. I um like a live work sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I got married and we would saved some money and we bought we uh we were, gave somebody $2,000 and got a loft. No,
1: just like today. Yeah, just
2: like today exactly. <laughs> and uh it was 350 a month and we oh. were like God how are we going to afford this? Right. You know. Um, and that was the first time um that was my first marriage and um and then I was you know I was working in a in a restaurant in in, in Soho and then I would uh um, I'd, then I'd, uh, I'd I'd work on an artist construction crew mm-hmm. and we'd Put up lofts for people, and then uh, I'd go back to working in a restaurant, and then I'd go back to putting up lofts again and painting apartments, and that went on back and forth for a while. You know, for did you num- meet a lot of people of doing that? Um, well, I met people. There was a guy that had gone to UC Davis, so as soon as somebody from UC Davis came to New York, they'd be on the crew. So I met a lot of people from UC Davis. <laughs> um, I remember that we built David Sally's first loft. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Uh,
1: In Soho, right? No, no. It was on
2: um, Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street. It looked out on the Flatiron Building. Yeah. Um, And, um, excuse me. Um, And... Uh, no, I had got, I'd actually, as far as like entering the art world, mm-hmm. um, I was working in this restaurant and the maitre d' said, you know, you should meet my dealer. So uh, <laughs> um, he sent me over to Barbara Toll, who was showing out of her loft at the time. And um, and then, you know, I met some of her artists mm-hmm. and uh, I showed with her in 83 and... Um, That went well, and then, um, you know, everything kind of changed in my life, and I wasn't in Tribeca anymore, and I wasn't married anymore, and I was moving from one place to another. I had a couple of studios around the city, and then I... Moved to uh, Williamsburg briefly, mm-hmm. and uh, one of my roommates was um, Dan Walsh, who oh, yeah. who went to. I talked to him. Yeah. yeah, who went to yeah right, and he went. I went. He went to PCA a few years after me, but mm-hmm. I knew him through the um, the very small um, PCA grapevine. Yeah, and then I moved to this place uh, on Flushing Avenue that I just lost six months ago after thirty three years.
1: So the math. What year was that? that You. I moved
2: to, I moved to, the the place on Flushing
1: Avenue in eighty five. Eighty five. So, what was Williamsburg like back then?
2: Oh, well, I had lived in Williamsburg right before that. Right.
1: And it was just really sleepy. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was quiet. Like industry on the water and pretty much desolate. Polish neighborhood. Yeah. Um, few people around. Right.
2: But you know, I wasn't really there for that long because mm-hmm. um I had moved over near Pratt. Um and um You know, the changes were always kind of incremental, but um and uh I mean I never got mugged or anything, but you know, it was kind of dicey. Yeah.
1: Um This is fascinating to me, you know, I've only been living And I mean, I moved to Queens for a little bit when I first moved here, but then it was pretty much Brooklyn, Williamsburg, South Williamsburg, East Williamsburg. The changes that have happened in the last 30 years, you know, since I first came to the city, visiting, you know, to Williamsburg, and then now, but imagining it, you know, as once a place where it was sleepy, just seems so hard to imagine because, you know... Because of the way it is now, the way it's so desirable, and it's so well,
2: you know, um, Williamsburg was sleepy, but but um, I mean, by the time I was out in Brooklyn, I was kind of like it was sort of like the end of a run mm-hmm. that sort of began when I moved to New York, which was, you know, Lower Manhattan from seventy seven for the next few years was also another decision that i was really happy with because it was exactly where i wanted to be it was really fun it was it was really like you know it's like whoever the parents were of like downtown manhattan it's it's like they sort of like just threw the keys at you and said look (laughs) do what the hell you want i don't know when we're going to be back Uh, enjoy yourself you know and um you know, really, the most interesting thing um, was what was going on in all the, the music clubs. Yeah. You know, and the, the artist that I, I knew, the, the idea was how do we make art
1: like this music? Right. You know, because there was that scene and energy to that. Imagine CBGBs. Right. You know, yeah, like, I used to go there all the time in yeah. the Mud Club and all of those places. This um, is a real feel and identity that, like, creative things that mean a lot right now are happening here. You know, and I think a lot of times with music as opposed to artwork, in the studio, you're isolated. You're usually by yourself and it's people, you know, all these people doing their individual things. And then you go out and show it and people go to openings. But with music, there's a sense of, like, it is happening here. You're in the studio in a way, like, seeing these people create this stuff. Which I think gives it a little more of a, a beehive feeling to it that you can identify with. And I think CBGBs must have been like that. I mean, when I first started coming to the city, places like, you know, Brownies or like uh, Tonic, places like that had that vibe to it. In Knitting Factory. Right, right. Back when it was in Tribeca, you know, those were places you want to go because you felt like, okay, the stuff that comes through here is going to be stuff that is really interesting and creative. And, you know, but it's, I feel like with art, it's, it's a different kind of process.
2: well well you know the thing is is that um a, a lot of music that takes place in the the kind of new music scene mm-hmm. in new York, like at the knitting factory and for yeah. um um uh the that that place that john zorn curates That's oh at, is um, it on a it's no no first, now or? it's at now it's at the new school um I can't remember the name of the, um, anyway, the, the new music scene, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that let's just say that somebody like Zorn is a major part of that as opposed to, you know, the more pop music scene, I find that, uh, situation to be, to be very inspiring because it's, it's very, very smart experimental stuff, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, by and th- that's what what stuff going on in the punk clubs seemed like, you know, in the late '70s and yeah. the early '80s. But it so quickly moved into this this commercial area, and a lot of the art that was influenced by that kind of moved into that area at the same time. So, so by the by, you know, 80, 84 or 85 there wasn't anything really very interesting in art or music because it had be- it had become this other thing it 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 had um it had sort of branded itself yeah and um you know there still seems to be this uh, uh this interest in in reviving um art of the 80s mm-hmm. as it's some kind of paradigm and um, you know um i'm largely uh, um um outside of whatever that mainstream is it it has I, it it really doesn't interest me um you know um because it developed into something different from its 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 foundation so quickly you yeah.
1: know um well how do you feel because as an artist who writes a lot and who is thinking critically about work I would imagine all the time. And you see like this wave of younger artists who are kind of co-opting styles of, you know, certain aspects of recent contemporary art history, you know what I mean? But removed from it in a sense of like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did you, how do you feel about that kind of work? Because it, it feels kind of like a parallel to that.
2: Well, it depends on, I don't know exactly um what, younger artists you're talking about Um, but um, when the generation that came along that includes people like um, I'll give names you know like Richard Aldrich and Mm -hmm. Patricia Tribe and Matt Connors Mm -hmm. and more recently Mike Cloud um, I think they're they're, um, you know when I first started seeing that work I was like thank god um Because I thought it was um, painting that was asking the kind of questions about painting that were relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, where um, for a good 20 years before that, it seemed like the painting was largely a situation where you would take some um, um, stand and use it as a kind of platform. Right. Um and that didn't interest me at all. I did, I did, I was really, um, I mean, there's, 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 you know, there was always individuals. Like, I thought, I thought actually, um, when Shirley, Le, when Sherry Levine was first, um, showing in the, in the latter part of the 80s, I thought, I think that she made a really interesting contribution to painting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and there, there, there are always, uh, um, certain certain people um that seem to um i have the i have there there was a point where i any kind of representational painting just exhausted itself for me by by the time I was i don't know forty or so which would have been the beginning of the nineties mm-hmm. and um i um the um, the real watershed in my life as a painter took place when, in 1988, when I went to Dia and I saw the Palermo Knobel exhibition. Yeah. I had seen the the Palermo at, at 77 at, at Heiner Friedrich, and it it uh, I didn't really I thought they were interesting, and I didn't know how to look at them. And then I saw the same paintings. 11 years later and it, there was there was a revelation
1: um, isn't it funny how that can happen like you just need that time to be able to digest and to have an understanding of the work
2: you well know? you know um, um, when was it 20 years ago when I, I went to Philadelphia to see the Barnett Newman retrospective I my reaction was you know if the 30 years I spent being an artist just so I can appreciate these paintings the way I'm appreciating right now it was worth it yeah it was worth it just for this, right? You know, um, whatever else happened, um, you know, um, there, you know, the 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 thing. My students, it's it's very hard to make them understand that um, the the thing that's interesting about art is is the way it, it, it it's it's a tremendous uh, let's let's say it's a tremendous filter for life, yeah, or tr- tremendous. Uh, uh, Structure from which to uh, um, experience life, right? You know, um, and I you know, totally agree. Yeah. And the the thing about the the um, the Palermo show was, um, you know, these really big experiences are v- are very hard to to really even articulate because in some way you don't want to completely verbalize them, but um, the um, the The paintings um uh it was the kind of physicality of the work um that also um transmitted this uh, this message that was so universal um and it was a way that um I don't think i I understood abstraction before that time you know Um, and uh, it took me about five years to become an abstract painter after that experience but I know that's how it happened he was just percolating in there and I was arguing with it I didn't I didn't accept that show Um, the show the show got in on some level that had nothing to do with me uh, um I had I was I was powerless over whatever kind of influence it was having. I could argue with it, I could reject it, but it was there. It was uh,
1: it was um, an injection.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: and it just had to percolate for a little while. Um, I remember the first time I saw those Blinky paintings at Dia, and I would cruise through up, that up upstate. Yeah, I mm-hmm. would cruise through that to see the Agnes Martin, which I loved. And it took me a while. Same with uh, Ankwada, like Ankawata for it took me a long time to really appreciate that work and the entire devotion to that work and what that means. And and I see in other people who don't really aren't invested in really thinking about art, you know, glance through that and be like, "What the hell?" You know, I, what is this? I can understand that, but I like to your point about like really appreciating, being able to really appreciate that stuff. I think is such a great way to to kind of like decode. And to filter you know life experience through, and uh but it takes a lot you know you have to kind of be willing to to give up to that and to say you know uh, this this work is something that I can really invest myself into and under- try to understand what that artist is doing, where they come from, what came before it, and how this really meant a lot you know
2: well you know there's um excuse me um a French painter who also um is a something of a of a theorist and an art writer named uh, Christian Bonfoy, and he calls it an encounter. Mm-hmm. When you have an encounter with a work, it's you know it 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 changes you. It's not just something that um you know you see and register or something. Right. And, and, walk away. and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and the only other person that was like that was. Um, uh about um, a dozen years ago when i saw this um this Hans Josefson show at Peter Bloom do you know that work no i don't he's a swiss sculptor that died a couple of years ago and um peter had like three or four of these big heads that he did and uh it just floored me to the point where um i um i was i, I had just a few months before, I, I, I had, you know, uh, or the year before, I had applied for a Fulbright to go back to Vietnam, and um, I was waiting around for the visa, which took forever. And uh, the previous spring, I had seen these Stone heads, and I wrote a review of it. And uh, so, I, I, you know, am I'm, 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 re- you know, the, I'm ready to go to Vietnam, and waiting around for the visa. And uh, my mother said, you know, I've been telling you kids if you want to take a trip with me. Um, you know, just let me know. I said, well, mom, I'm waiting around for this visa, but what I'd really like to do is go to Switzerland and see this guy, Joseph Zone's sculpture. He said, well, she says, oh, well we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I traveled around Switzerland for 10 days with my mother. And because there's these, he's got, there's a small museum in Southern Switzerland and he's in Zurich. His foundry is in St. Gallen, And, uh, we ended up going to the studio and, uh, um, uh, eventually, I wrote a long piece on him for Art in America when I was still doing a lot of writing, mm-hmm. and um, and then I actually ended up being a resident in the Foundry the following summer when I was working on that article. But now they have a
1: residency there,
2: um, or was that just for you? That would- um it's, certainly it's it's uh, it's it's you you can be invited. Yeah, put it that way. Okay, and uh, so I did my own work and uh, they gave me a bicycle and I'd uh, ride up to the top of St. Gallen every day and they have this series of linked ponds and you could swim back and forth for like a half a mile each mm-hmm. way or something and and then I'd go back to the studio or I'd go over to the foundry where they also have a museum of his work and uh, I wrote this article on it. It was a very monk-like but uh, uh, pleasant summer it sounds great. Uh and that was right after my my um uh, my Fulbright uh time in Vietnam and Cambodia where I had a studio in Phnom Penh for a while and I was doing writing on art in Vietnam and
1: uh, Yeah, what attracted you to that, you know, specifically to the places that you've traveled to and how has that like entered your work? Well, the second time I was married, mm-hmm. um
2: her she had an ex-boyfriend who was um the 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 woman i was married to had an ex-boyfriend that was um, a journalist in in um, bangkok this was in 89 and she said you know we should go over to southeast asia and i didn't even know about it i i said yeah okay yeah sure (laughs) and uh and we ended up you know traveling through thailand malaysia indonesia for a couple of months and um but on the way in from the airport the first night we were there i was already in love with it i was already in love with southeast asia before Mm -hmm. like within an hour and uh i i I just loved traveling there and um was it
1: the excitement of just being somewhere you know totally different or was it more the landscape or was it the the food the culture the people it's all of it. all of it right
2: yeah it's all of it um the one thing I sort of isolated though is um there's um there's a lack of there really isn't a kind of boundary between uh the natural and the man-made mm-hmm. there that there is here in the west. Yeah. You know, um it's kind of more of a a mix. It's very appealing uh, on that level, you mm-hmm. know. Um and you know just the fact that I think that it's it's kind of you know the same way that um not that I read a lot of science fiction but i'm i i'm 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 developing a bit more of appreciation for it that I think that science fiction appeals to artists in a similar way because it's like it 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 kind of everything is everything can be changed from what it is yeah you know and When you go to a different country, the thing that's appealing about it is everything's a little changed from what it is. You you feel like,
1: oh, I'm living, because it's different and you're aware of it. Right.
2: Um, So, in any case, we spent two months there, and and then in the 90s, I was pretty impoverished, so I wasn't able to go anywhere. But as soon as uh, I got a little money, I, I went back to, the first trip I took was back to Southeast Asia. I was already going to, I was almost on a commute for the beginning at the beginning of the century. I was always going to Paris or Southeast Mm Asia. Yeah, (laughs) I was really into painting in Paris too. Um, Did
1: you ever think to move, or would that kill the the charm of visiting? (laughs) um, You know what I mean? It might take the well
2: after after you know my time there. um, I I realized that I needed the familiar more than I realized. Yeah, and um, you know, but I was considering it and um, you know seeing Joseph's own, uh in his studio um, sort of at the end of that you know when I was in I was in Switzerland afterwards I just thought well you know now that you've done this you know what you really want to do with the rest of your life is just do your work yeah um, so that's kind of what happened you know I mean I still jump on a plane a lot jump on planes regularly but um um you know i'm i'm not gonna be i don't think i'm gonna um, move to southeast asia you know there's places i want to go yeah lots of places i want to go but um but i'm I'm really um, i'm centered uh i'm a i'm a centered as a studio artist I mean also at the time you know a dozen years ago I was doing a lot of writing and I was doing some curating and and, uh, after that that kind of stopped Um, you know I still like to write um, I'll do catalog essays I'll write something occasionally but um, there's also a conflict I don't know I mean Stephen Westfall's managed to continue to review and be an artist but um, uh, it, it seemed to be. I was at. Uh, um, there was even things online where people would complain that I would I would come in, come in the gallery as a critic and then try and promote my work. And how did they know I was coming in as a critic? Because <laughs> well, they just I, I had saw a, you I, had, a. I <laughs> had my critic hat on. Right. I, you know, I had, had my derby on instead of my cap. <laughs> you know, your, your pipe. Right, all right. <laughs> But I just thought, you know, I got to get out of this. Yeah. And, uh,
1: it is funny though how people treat you differently, isn't it? As an artist as opposed to someone who could potentially do something for them or one of their artists. Do you know what I mean? Like if I go into a gallery to have a meeting to do a podcast, it's totally different than if I'm just an artist coming in asking a question.
2: Right. Um, well, it's long, you know, it's, it's been, it's, some time has passed now. Um, so I successfully got myself out of it because I remember what I did for a while is just everybody I saw, I'd say, I'm not writing anymore. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? What, what's up? I'm not writing anymore. <laughs> you know, it just went on for about six months. Because
1: people would try to pitch you Or, or pitch even, you They wouldn't even have
2: to. Yeah. I would just like, it was almost like getting the word out. Right. And uh, finally I heard back from somebody, said, I, yeah, I hear you're going around telling everybody you're not writing anymore. I thought, okay, um, and you know the thing is i mean i uh, I like writing i th- mm-hmm. it's uh it, in some ways it's it, it there's a there's a different kind of satisfaction because it's much more of a craft than painting yeah um, if you continue to um work on the thing, mm-hmm. um, eventually it's going to turn into something. You know you put in the time right. and you get a result um, it's, I think it's different when you make art
1: um, yeah it's a different there's a different pace to that it's not so one to one in a way mm. so you know now I teach writing yeah
2: I'm teaching I teach writing to graduate students at Pratt and the fine arts students and I teach art criticism.
1: Well, do you ever think about maybe writing like a book or something that's not? You know, where you have to go into galleries and it's like a review-based thing? Or do you feel more comfortable writing in short spurts of like, you know?
2: Well, I have a dream project. I want to write John Copland's biography. Really? Yeah, I'd love to. I don't know if I'll ever get to do it, but that's a book I want to do. Yeah,
1: that's a book I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that'd be great.
2: Um He's not exactly the most PC character around. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, well that makes it <laughs>
2: Um but it would be a really interesting book to do, yeah. I think.
1: Um
2: And it'd be nice if somebody collected my writings into a book, you know, um but I'm I'm not uh, I'm not going to spend the time compiling it myself. I right. just um,
1: Well, I think I yeah. I love reading about people's lives, you know. I just finished that book, Herbie Hancock's book, Possibilities, and I couldn't read that thing fast enough. It was so, I I love, for some reason I really love reading about musicians' lives because it's such, I was, if it's a musician that I love, I, I want to be there, you know. Like, I wanted to be in a club watching Miles Davis. And reading one of those books is like the closest I'll get to that experience, hearing other people or themselves talk about those situations, you know, and it's different in movies because it's always, you know, dramatized in a way that, you know, and then it's envisioned where I like to imagine that. But, yeah, I think writing a book about someone's life and work would be great.
2: I read the um, the Art Pepper autobiography uh, a year never or so that. ago. Oh, don't. Oh, is it terrible? Oh, it's just like he's...
1: <laughs> what made you choose Art Pepper of all Well, that? he's
2: he's he's very good.
1: Um, I know, but he doesn't... It, it, as a jazz musician. It was on the shelf. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and
2: uh, every time I go to Strand, they never have that monk book. Oh, um, the monk book's good. Yeah, I, I've still got to read there's it. There's a
1: new, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a new graphic novel. I forget the name of the author or, you know, the guy who did it. He's French. It's called Monk. And it's, oh, yeah. It's beautiful. It's a graphic novel based on his life. Um, have you, have, you must have
2: read um, But Beautiful. But Beautiful? No. The Jeff Dyer book? Mm, haven't that's that's really a very very good book about jazz. It's very interesting I'll check it out um it's 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 great i think it probably came out at least a dozen years ago now um Jeff Dyer has gone on to be a less interesting writer than he was when he wrote that book mm-hmm. um, um but it's it's a con they're they're almost like um fantastic not fantastic um exactly um fantasy versions based on the reality of certain jazz musicians lives mm-hmm. um each of them is maybe i don't know 20 or 30 pages um with other little things there it's a very interesting book um and you know around the time uh that i was i became an abstract painter I got more interested in jazz again. Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, the thing about Art Pepper, I mean, I was certainly listening to a lot of people. Was um, I was listening to the trip, and and thinking about how much it, it was just came out of Coltrane, but the thing I was impressed with was how what i was what i was really listening to was simply attention a t t e n t i o n and um just moment to moment attention as this music was being made, which was very very similar to looking at blinky palermo's right. people in the New York city times a day which was moment to moment attention of a painting being made mm-hmm. you know and uh you know I was making these c- i was making those kind of connections for the first time um because the first abstract paintings I was doing um were pretty much that i mean um somehow the Palermos raised my consciousness eventually where I was watching the paint come out of the tube I was watching what how the paint behaved uh, um the anything beyond that immediacy was suddenly irrelevant yeah um and um what a painting was was relatively irrelevant because um palermo seemed to uh say you can stop looking at art now you can just look at the world and um you know i remember um one of the first trips i took I took this trip to Mexico, and I just looked at how things were painted in mexico and um um you know the whole country's pan painted uh you know they, the way they painted the curbs it was beautiful it was like all this paint would just drip off of the curb mm-hmm. you know there were ta- there were little towns where the whole town was painted by hand, every sign and um uh Julian Schnabel's photographic memory had been all over. You could just see where Schnabel got everything in rural Mexico. Um, It was interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, your work strikes me as, you know, jazzy in the sense that there is this what feels to be improvisation, um, a sort of breaking loose of a sort of rhythmic um, composition, but then it's all very compositional in a way, you know, but it breaks apart, it kind of tightens up, it loosens up within the image. There just seems to be a play about it that feels somewhat jazzy. Um,
2: well, I mean, composition, I think, is what painting is.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, but in, it, in, in the, the, the sense... more it draws its attention to itself, the more, like, jazz broke that down into, you know, when you had people like Postbop, when they were breaking apart the sort of, you know, conventional, popular jazz structure of the song, that was that be, the subject matter became the breakdown of that and the expression of the, you know, the the sonic elements within the loosening of the composition. So it once it draws attention to itself by breaking apart, that becomes the subject matter in a way. Because composition's like you're saying, it's always there. But when you dissolve it and then bring it back together again, you're sort of shining the light on it in that sense.
2: Well, the way I understand composition as simply um uh trying to put things together that aren't together you know um well where first I would do it very simply um like I was making these burlap paintings and I the the way I was preparing the burlap had so much uh to me, anyway, visual content already, Mm -hmm. that the only thing I could do was put a kind of really weak uh, brushstroke on it, and that would be plenty. And then I thought, well, what is the most different thing I can do now? And so I would put in a piece of colored felt or something. And so the composition was the fact that I was trying to put two things as different as possible in the same situation. And then it sort of expanded from there. But the, from, from the way I understand um, painting in relation to what I think I've learned from the way the French think about it is that um, um, it, it is composing. It isn't as opposed to practicing a style. Mm-hmm. um it's it's always about trying to put things together that are different um
1: in some way right you know um and that and that's the art of it right in a way that's the art of like a jazz combo, you know putting drums together with an upright bass sonically with a saxophone and then you know a piano they're very distinct sonic elements that you're just throwing together um I can't make the bridge.
2: (laughs) I can't, I can't bridge that. I can't make that metaphor. I can't bridge that metaphor. I'm plagued Uh, with it.
1: I'm constantly trying to make parallels between music, creatively creating music and then making art. I don't know why, but it's just something I love to do. it's, It's apples and oranges, but at the same time, there are, you know, there are similarities, I think.
2: Oh, oh, no doubt. Um, but I can't do it. That's yeah. that's all I'm saying. And, and you know, the thing I was saying in relation to what was happening in the '80s is that um, there was this idea that you could make painting that was like rock and roll, and it was a bad idea. Yeah. Because painting isn't like rock and roll. It's it just it's it's different. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because what you do is you kind of lose. Excuse me. Everything about there's a particular way that a painting communicates, which is really kind of sequential. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, rock and roll just doesn't do that any more than advertising doesn't do that. And, and any, anything like that doesn't do that. So, you know, um, um, no, I mean the, the, the music, I remember the one time I made a music comparison was, um, uh, I was writing about um, Helmut Federle, mm-hmm. and um, I said I thought that what his painting was trying to do wasn't really comparable to any other um, contemporary painting as much as I thought he was trying to do what some of these Eastern European composers like Arvo part and, and uh, a
1: few others were, were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels good when you make that... <laughs> connection right uh, I was always disappointed when they interviewed Paul or that Pollock was talking about the fact that you know they were like oh you you must like Ornette Coleman or you know like Coltrane and like these free jazz people and he listened to like Billie Holiday and swing music well I mean I think he died in 55
2: I don't think Coleman uh, was even uh, breaking out no I think he was later I think it was like 1960 yeah he yeah that would have been Ornette Coleman uh, I well, mem- yeah when
1: he was breaking into free jazz stuff yeah. Um, yeah, there was, or little... maybe even uh, Charlie Th- Parker. You know, yeah, well, like Charlie B-ball. Parker, sure, yeah, because yeah. he, in a sense, he's exploding. You know, a normal composition into the, like flurry of notes, which you would think is freer than you know a Chet Baker song or something.
2: Well, you know, this is the thing: is like when they, when they took Pollock and um, they tried to turn it into performance or music or something mm-hmm. or um some sort of decor, it really subtracted from from what he was doing. Yeah. You know. Um you know, I, I actually think that um it seemed to me that if basically abstract expressionism led to what we call minimalism, um, that seemed to be kind of a dead end, which is why European painting sort of interests me more right um, you know what the French were doing after the war mm-hmm. um, because they they weren't trying to isolate one aspect of the painting language the way not that these guys weren't great, you know Pollock and newman et cetera et etc um but they um they 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 were they were always trying to um work with what the whole painting did as opposed to one aspect of it right. beca- it beca-
1: it wasn't that that wasn't great work, but it was kind of a dead end for painting yeah um a necessary end in a way you know that you could build back i mean it's a, again, I could draw parallels to like tony Conrad or or you know John Cage or Zorn or people like that who who took music to that. Oh, Tony Conrad's wonderful. Yeah, I love. But and and you could say that that's minimalism in the sense that like taking music down the one note for you know thirty minutes, something like that. You know, Tony Conrad said something wonderful
2: about what minimalism was. He said minimalism was about the idea that life is so generous that you have all the time you need to pursue any idea that occurs to you or something like that. The yeah. idea was like it. it the, the whole form is just a kind of allowance to take all the time in the world you possibly need, which is why um, Baudelaire's my hero. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, even though he was miserable and, you know, constantly writing his. Mother for money and and and, and, uh, <laughs> right. and everything else he he went into the galleries like he had all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean as far as what he was actually trying to do with his life when it came to that, it was like all bets were off, and he had all the time in the world and um, you know one of one of my big problems with contemporary painting is this kind of urgency in it um, you know this kind of salesmanship yeah. it's just. Um, revolting. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I, t- I totally understand what you're saying. Um, Baudelaire was the champion of Manet, correct? Manet was my favorite. A no, he was,
2: no. Actually, he wasn't. A, he was the champion of Delacroix. Manet was a disciple of Baudelaire. Baudelaire, um, uh, you know, acknowledged Manet. Yeah, um, but like. The thing that's so interesting is that Manet, like, um, they're paintings that are based on Baudelaire prose poems. Yeah. Um, you know, outright. Um, yeah. That's a whole story in itself. I, I teach Baudelaire every semester. Mm-hmm. You can't take Fife without reading
1: Baudelaire. An artist has to be of one's own time. That's Baudelaire.
2: Well, the thing that, that, the, the thing I got from him was that um, an artist, more than anything else, is responsible to his own curiosity. Mm-hmm. And you should just do whatever the hell, your, wherever your curiosity takes you, that's your responsibility to go there.
1: Because seated in that is an unconscious interest of what you're interested in is going to be of one's time, right? Because you're, you're sort of interested in the world that's happening around you. It wasn't that part of his thing is that you have to sort of be in the moment.
2: Well, um, yeah, there's no guarantee that your curiosity is going to make you an artist of your time. But um, it, it certainly made me uh, think that um, my work had to reflect my time. It's, mm-hmm. it, it became a conscious concern. Yeah. Um, where I think when I was younger, I was just reacting to um, the other stuff going on around me. Right. Um, so I think it's different. Yeah. You know um because when I was going over to paris um, you know in the early 2000s, there wasn't really a lot of abstraction around. Um, I forget what was going on, but I was seeing this abstraction over there that wasn't happening here. They had a whole different you know tradition of it or yeah. um, you know, and uh, it the, thing, the the thing that was attractive about it is it was um it was very physical and it was very intellectual and um the problem i had what was going on here is it was kind of in the middle of those two poles mm-hmm. and the two poles in the same painting was was what was interesting which was very similar to palermo yeah in that way you know um and canobol and but then the um investigating the history of post-war french painting deepened um what um, what I had discovered in in Palermo and Canoe mm-hmm. um,
1: do you feel like you at your stage now seeing what you've seen living what you lived made the work that you made and where you're at in your own work in your own sensibilities that the sense of urgency that you were talking about that is maybe irritating or not desirable that kind of like that urgency can only come with time? And do you feel that a lot of, with younger artists, there's just not that sense of time and investment to sort of understand how to come to terms with that kind of urgency? Do you know what I mean? Like, Do you feel like in making work, there's an, an optimal pace to it? I've certainly slowed down in a sense in my work from when I was in my 20s. And I'm not talking about slowing down, just like producing the work. I'm talking about slowing down the process of thinking about it and how it's, what it means, what it's, you know, what it means together. If I'm doing a show, what that show is about. You know, all that stuff is kind of slowed down in a way. Um, How do you feel about the pace of, of making and what that means to the work?
2: Well, I think it's, well, I think it's just different for everybody. You know, um, I don't know what uh, Blinky Palermo would be making if he hadn't have died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I just wrote about um, um, Stanley Whitney and, um, you know, this thing that he says in an interview that's so wonderful is that for the first 20 years he hated everything he did. And I thought that was great. Um, I know exactly how he felt. Um you know, a lot of people think that
1: you don't really even start painting until you're in your 40s. Um, didn't Hokusai say something like, I'm not going to make a good piece of work until I'm 99 or something? Hokusai? Yeah. Gee, I didn't hear that one. Yeah. Um, Maybe I made that up, but I thought I... have <laughs> But yeah, that idea that... but Well, that idea that you, you know, you work to a certain level to where you feel like, you know, that, that idea that, you know, I'm, I haven't made something good or or worthwhile until I've been doing it for 10,000 hours or 20 years or whatever it is. I mean, the structure of the way people make art and the urgency of being able to afford, say, living in New York City and having a studio doesn't really afford you that time and pace to slowly create that work over time and to be engaged in you know, a community and have discourse and slowly you know, a, accumulate that experience to to feel like, okay, now I'm finally making something interesting? Or do you think that's a real test of an artist to be able to, you know, to stay on the boat that long in the, in the choppy waters? Um, well, I suppose if you want
2: to be a serious artist, you have to figure out a, a way to give yourself the time and the space to do the work, in case it gets good, right but I mean there 's no guarantee of that, or you know you can you can make good work under the most adverse conditions. Um, there is a this Vietnamese guy who I really admire, who died when um, I was in Vietnam who I, I actually managed to meet um, who made um, all of these works on newspaper um, when we were bombing Hanoi. Mm -hmm. And he was completely ostracized because he was making individual expressions as opposed to propaganda posters and things like that. So he was actually kind of hiding making this work. And, you know, he could have been driven to make this stuff and uh, it could have been terrible, you know, and and it would have been a great story and everything, but the work would have been terrible. But it's really wonderful work so I mean I don't know you know um, the thing that I found though is that uh, um, everywhere I've been where I've looked for artists there have been really good artists you know yeah. um, and you know I'll tell you the truth one of the reasons that um, uh, I, I was going back to Vietnam is I would I would write about Vietnamese artists I, 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 and the same reason I was writing about French artist when I was writing is um, the the work interested me I sort of like ended up creating my own art world, yeah <laughs> you know I'd go off and I'd find something that that hadn't been covered or was interesting to me that was that was filling in a territory I didn't know about, and I would write about them mm-hmm. you know um uh, you know there's um there's a lot of things that, for various reasons, the system doesn't uh, acknowledge. Right. You know, at any given time. I mean, you know, now um, the system is busi- busi- busily acknowledging anybody that was marginal before. It's almost, you know, a kind of reversal. But right. um, uh, I don't see many Vietnamese artists around. Um, which is just as much the fault of the Vietnamese government as anything else, unfortunately.
1: Right. Yeah. Mm. It's funny because I think when I talk, you know, if I sit down and talk about art and talk about the phenomenon of showing work or, you know, things come up that I don't even really think about that much in day-to-day conversation. But when you mentioned that idea of, like, in your own work, you felt like I I didn't start making... You know, really good work, or you know, you didn't feel good about the work you were making until well after you started, quote unquote, being an artist. You know, is that it's so funny how, you know, nowadays the the support structure for artists, which is usually there, which is maybe being able to sell some of your work, or maybe being able to show it and and engage in the community of showing your work, is so geared towards younger artists and like turning it over. Kind of like in the music industry where it's like, you know, you get a young band, they get hot for a little bit and then they're gone. And then the next thing, you know what I mean? That kind of like quick turnaround of people and not like the long term look at someone's career and how it morphs and changes over decades. Doesn't seem to be that attention span anymore. For the most part. So, you know, I guess that that phenomenon is interesting to me, especially as a mid-career artist who, you know, I've been around for a little while and I don't I mean, I'm going to do the work I'm doing regardless of the extenuating circumstances right. around it or or whether it's received or well or not received at all but is it in, it's an interesting thought you know or or something that is is out there of like how do you sustain or like you know what's the speed of of someone of the the public the art viewing public's attention span to someone's work over the course of time is it there or do you just have to be quote unquote good enough that people will want to pay attention to your work and pretend it has nothing to do with the venues that are showing it in that environment, which we all know that that does have some sort of, you know, impact on what work gets seen over time. You know, if you're an artist showing at David's Werner, you're probably going to be looked at a little more in 20 years than if you're showing on a, you know, upstart in the Lower East Side. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, um, there are certainly plenty of strategies out there um. I um, I didn't you know f- I didn't pay attention to them for a long time I didn't want to once I was kind of happy with what I was doing um, uh, I got a lot of grants for a while mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a lot of traveling and I wanted to do what I wanted to do and uh, so I didn't I didn't feel like I had to pay it. I mean, it was kind of a mistake, I suppose, but I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it until um, a bit more recently, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, uh, and, you know, I guess there's a lot of younger artists that, you know, are... I think when I was young, I was thinking about strategy, too. Um,
1: but uh, then everything went haywire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's survival, in a way. You know, you're just trying to whether you're younger or you're an older artist, you're just trying to figure out a way that you could just keep making work and whatever way that is. So try to be resourceful for some people, it's residencies grants or it's, you know, riding out that shit job for, you know, that you have to do or, you know, like we were talking about earlier, find a friend and like have a tiny space that you're sharing somewhere way out in Brooklyn or, you know, whatever mm. it is. But at the end of the day, we all just want to be able to make work and and hopefully uh, uh around that making is just facilitating that happening well you know it's
2: it's i mean i hate to say it but you know it it i'm at the point now where like i'm mostly just interested in what i'm interested in yeah i mean yeah i'm not i don't i don't really have a big picture on much of anything right <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Well, with your um,
1: with your work, are you working pretty much every day? Do you go to the studio every day, or is it, you know, what's your what's your process? You know, um, how is it integrated into your your life as far as your working schedule?
2: Well, I, I I think the thing that's that's changed in my work more recently is that for a number of years, um, once I I moved into abstraction. Um, it was a little bit like Baudelaire. I just, it, it isn't like I wasn't in the studio regularly, but I was not pushing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of like moving for the first time in my life at this kind of pace that was going nowhere. It was, it was. I've said this any number of times. Somebody came up in my studio one time and said, "Well, where do you see this work going?" And I said, "Nowhere. I like it here." And that was really true. Um and it's a
1: nice realization, I think, <laughs> to be able to be comfortable with that and say, "No, this is I'm just working on this."
2: Yeah, yeah. And but eventually it seemed that you you begin to uh, um, uh act on these impulses that are like I wonder what would happen if I did this so the work does kind of move forward but there was still um there was still a kind of logic to it for me for a number of years and then um more recently um I got to this place where the work started to to resolve itself again through a kind of irrational process where instead of moving along in a way that i understood i would i would get in over my head and have to get out of it which is like what i did for most of you know my my um formative yeah. 20 years or something mm-hmm. where you're just like you don't know where you are and then you got to try and get out of it and now i'm there again now it's it's like um um you know i tend to get in over my head and get out of it every time so that's something relatively new um but you know the only th- the only thing is is that I I am tr- I am in the past year or so I've introduced, you know these texts. Yeah, um, and is that I'm, a
1: huge shift?
2: Um, well, it happened sort of accidentally. Mm-hmm. Where um, maybe twenty years ago I tried to do a painting that was an abstract version of Apollinaire's rain poem. Mm-hmm. So I already sort of knew the format, and I was I was stuck on this painting. I thought, gee. I I know it'd be a really indulgent thing to do, but I think I'll just impose il pleut here, and see what happens. And uh, everybody that came to the studio thought it was an interesting painting, so I started making more of them. Mm-hmm. And um, Natalie liked them, so we did a show of them. And um, and then my German dealer came, and I was I had when the show was up, I was over at the Pratt Library, and I pulled down this. This volume of Brecht poems. I had no idea that he wrote poems. And they were really interesting. And uh, um, so I started uh, making paintings with Brecht poems in them. And I told my German dealer when he was looking at these French poem paintings, I said, you know, I'm starting to make German poems. So uh,
1: we're going to do a show of my Brecht paintings in November. It's interesting. It's all in a way, I mean, obviously, it's collage to an extent. But it's also like sampling. you say so. It's kind of like (laughs) hip-hop. Well, it is. I mean, you're sampling text, which is kind of like sampling music in a way. You know what I mean? But you're doing your spin on it, like with the composition. So you're obviously, like, you're playing with the way that the words are floating around on canvas. It's not like you're just having it written out like a book page. But you're sampling. You're putting together these different textures and these different... Uh, surfaces and then words and ideas through those words that you're sort of reorganizing and making your own so it's really kind of like the invention of of rap music
2: um well i just sort of think they're unsentimental about painting um which is uh that's the way I like to think about them anyway.
1: Unsentimental? Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't all work unsentimental unless it's sentimental?
2: No, I think there's an awful lot of painting around that's very sentimental about painting. Right, but it's, it's about about painting as being a kind of good thing. Oh, right. You know, painting is good. Right. And uh
1: there's a virtue in it.
2: it yeah, there's something or there's or it's it's something that is important. It's not. Um I think it's interesting, but mm-hmm. as far as you know, uh, being a kind of advocate for a, a medium or something, um, you know, um, I'd like it to be—I'd I, I, like it to be new, new. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not trying to support painting. It's a good scale. These. Um i hadn't used that i hadn't made a 9 foot painting in about 10 years before i made the paintings in the last show um,
1: did you make the stretchers
2: uh well i had them made yeah um yeah i had a i had a friend uh, uh who used to have a cabinet shop and occasionally uh we'd trade work and uh, i'd get a lot of custom made stretchers made and you know i don't need an incredible amount of torque because i just stretch up
1: uh cloth yeah. and you thank know, they, god because that's not easy to right and, well, the, the
2: other thing is you know they go on and off the stretcher a lot and always have because the way i work is um there isn't a ground oh really they're kind of pieced together yeah, yeah. so half of the time uh you know there's a there's an there's, there's a painting on the back that's kind of a version of the painting on the front because they right. they flip all the yeah. time i mean i use a lot of staples because they go on and off a lot um and you know, for a while there, I wasn't making any rectangles. I was making things off the stretcher, mm-hmm. um, and then once I did that, I thought, well, you know, the stretcher, the the, the rectangle, does things that um, you can do things there that you can't do with
1: cloth in space, cloth on the wall.
2: Yeah. Um, you know.
1: Um. Well, these are really great. I, I'm sure you saw that Twitter show at MoMA.
0: Mm Mm-mm,
1: no. Are you a fan? Well, I mean, I like him,
2: sure. I mean... um, (laughs) Yeah, he's all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't Um, know, for some reason, Schwitters is one of those people, like, you know, with Blinky or something that I put on a, you know... I put high up because that work seems like at that time, that was just, like, crazy. Like, what he was doing was just, you know, so different. Kind of like Hans Richter and those, you know, I love those early stop-motion animation things that surrealists were doing, like Hans Wickner and Egling and people like that, because it just, for the people seeing that stuff, it must have been so weird. Like, what are you doing? You know, like abstract moving motion pictures. And um, Schwitter seemed like, you know, it's kind of like ballsy work at that point. But I just thought you might like that sensibility because these have, you know, that collage-like feel to them.
2: Well, you know, there's all this... um I suppose there's content because, you know, there's uh, signage from Southeast Asia and French poems lately and German poems and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, um, it's incidental to the fact that I always feel like I'm simply trying to solve formal problems. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the formal problems have to do with... um, the relation of the viewer to the painting and the relation of um, um and, and frontality um and um i i i i the one thing one of the things i learned looking at a lot of um relatively contemporary french painting is that they're, um they 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 problematize frontality where I, I notice that there's a way that you look through, even though they're 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 two dimensional paintings. You they they have a, a um, you know a sequential quality about them. Mm-hmm. They're they're very, they're very clear on that, and um, uh, you 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 don't have you don't have the painting uh, uh, looking back at the viewer there quite the way you do here. Um, and you know, even, even when I was first doing, um, uh, making abstract paintings, I always thought to myself, how do I, how do I make an abstract painting where you're not looking at the front of it, but you're looking at the middle of it. (laughs) Right. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why I I sort of like flip them a lot and things like that because, um... I'm always trying to keep the artist at bay. Uh I'm trying to bring in this material and then have a, a tangential relationship to it. Um you know, I'm obviously not very interested in the hand. Um, um I'm not interested in, in um I mean sensibility, there's nothing you can do about it, but uh I have there's no reason to uh um um Dramatize that, or emphasize it, or anything. Um, so, you know, for me, there's there's this problem that has to do with, um, you know, the relation of 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 the artist to the the work itself. I mean, which is why, at one point, I realized that uh, that I was actually um, the the person who I felt I had a lot in common with was Carl Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, it seemed to me that there was a kind of um, uh, non-hierarchical relationship between the the people that manufactured the material, the material itself, the artist, and the audience. They they all seemed to be um, kind of on the same plane, the floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but that you know, um, yeah. and that was sort of like my touchstone, where where for me um whenever i would get lost i i'd I'd, I'd, re- I'd think to myself well what you're trying to do is um is uh create a situation with this material that um you look at the way you look at a painting but is not um is not forcing the issue uh you know um so it was it was you know that that continues to be a problem and um it's the reason that um you know I I'm, I'm alienated from so much work is because I always feel like you know everything in this culture is constantly trying to manipulate you and get your attention and sell you something mm-hmm. and when works of art try and do that um I just I just get my back up
1: um yeah well so in some people I mean if you look at Warhol I mean he is He's embedding his content and his ideas within the structure of that selling. You know what I mean? So, no, like Warhol,
2: I, Warhol, I think, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no trouble with
1: Warhol. <laughs> no, I think I think if if people... Do, in other words, like when you say that, I, I agree with you, but I think there are certain people who use that kind of avenue effectively, which becomes really interesting in relation to the work. Just like before you were saying, I don't like when people... What, how did you describe it when they're? Anyways, basically, when when people use the structure of something they're critiquing in a really interesting way, it can be great. But if they're not, then it can be really bad.
2: Well, the uh, the, uh, the one example I can give you is is um, you know I went to the Frank Stella retrospective and I had this very this odd thought came into my head. Uh, I, I thought, you know, these are the least narcissistic paintings I can think of. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why the hell do you think that? <laughs> and, you know, I thought about it for a long time. And I think the thing that uh, was interesting to me and my reaction to do with the fact that I was really looking at like somebody that y- the way they're thinking is actually closer to what an artist would identify as the way an architect thinks mm-hmm. than the way an artist thinks. Yeah. But that's only because the way we're we're so used to thinking about how artists think, which is they think about themselves all the time. But right. But Stella is always thinking about it, not so much how to solve technical problems, but simply how to solve painting problems. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's always done. And um, that's really interesting. Somebody coming up with painting problems to solve. Yeah is really interesting as opposed to personality on parade. Right. Uh, But do
1: you feel like some people use artwork, let's say socially engaged artwork, in a really interesting way where they're trying to solve societal problems? Or do you think that that avenue just doesn't work? Well, you know, I would... I.
2: I didn't see it, but that, that show that was devoted to Manny Farber and his ideas that was just out at the Hammer, um, that seemed like a great show to me. Yeah. Um, I really liked a lot of the artists in that show. You know, a lot of the artists that um, I really admire aren't painters. You know, like I'm crazy about Myra Davy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, I like her relationship to the social. Um which is also very it's very very it's incredibly personal work, but it's not about her at the same time yeah. you know um um you know because i i was uh i was showing my students a couple of her films last semester, and uh I've always liked the photographs and you know it's just her- her wandering around the house and and you know uh her engagement with various texts and and uh and her own life but mm-hmm. um uh her attitude um i found really refreshing um and it's not um the kind of attitude that i identify in a lot of painters um because um i don't see the issues um I, you know i do think that there are issues in painting you just have to figure them out well you know often when i go to um Sorry. It's okay. Often when I go to the Lower East Side or Chelsea or something, I walk around and uh, I just like everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but I, I think that uh, later or in relation to my own work, um, the, the critical element becomes really important because that's really the only way that I move forward or sustain what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, as far as, um, making judgments about what other people are doing, um, I suppose that the only time I'm judgmental is if it comes into my territory at all. Right. You know, um, I remember years ago, um, running into a poet uh, at 420 West Broadway one Saturday, and uh, I think it was at Sauna Bend or something like that. I don't remember what it was. And she said, "Oh, isn't all this stuff great?" And I was like, "Well, this one is, eh, and this one is." Eh. I said, "But you know, it's so great to go over to St. Mark's Poetry Club." And she was like, "Oh, I hate it over there. I mean, I can't stand <laughs> that stuff. I really like." And it was just the same thing where, in a lot of ways, one is almost more refreshed by somebody's other medium entirely than than by your own i mean all of it gets too close in a way it's all good and it's all it all gets too close at the same time um
1: that's what i love so much about music yeah exactly because i feel like if i go out it has nothing to do with what i'm doing in a way but it is energizing to see other people you know making stuff and doing creative things
2: well, that's why. um Yes, um, improvisation. You know, a lot of contemporary improvisational music is great stuff. Like, like um I saw Tishon Sori mm-hmm. not too long ago. Who was
1: where? Where did you? Uh, the Kitchen. Nice.
2: And uh, you know, I, apparently he had a residency uh, somewhere this summer. I would have liked to have seen some of that, mm-hmm. um, but. That kind of stuff is great, yeah, and back to my work yeah the the improvisational elements really important yeah.
1: uh, um, um, so I figured you weren 't sketching these out in Photoshop beforehand
2: no, um, but you know, I do make stencils mm-hmm. you know i would I would actually work up the painting to the point where um, I thought it, I could impose a poem over it and then you know i'd grid up the poem onto you know um glassine paper mm-hmm. and then i'd cut out all the little letters yeah. and rough it in and then i'd i'd paint it by hand yeah. but i didn't want to project i didn't want it to be exactly clear how the the text landed on it right and then they wouldn't work out sometimes you know and i'd have to start from scratch or turn the thing over or something like that um
1: that's the uh, the endless investigation side of it. Mm-hmm. Well, so for people who may not be very familiar with your work, or you know where they can, the best place to find it is on the website, right? Um, on
2: Natalie Karg's website, yeah. On my website, on Céson Benetier's website, mm-hmm. and also Christian Lethert in cologne's website um you're
1: not an avid social media guy i imagine
2: um i used to be on facebook 20 times a day and then i quit and the the instagram i don't do that i do it now and then yeah i think i maybe look at it maybe once a day but i didn't get addicted to it right um
1: yeah i I quit facebook too it's too much it's a real downer (laughs) insidious um, so stuff, people just it turned into my feet turned into people complaining all the
2: time well you sort of like you get back in touch with the people you went to high school with and then after a couple of months you kind of like block them because they're a bunch of jerks and <laughs> right. then that's
1: it yeah <laughs> that's basically alright I did it <laughs> yeah, yeah right <laughs> next um,
2: and you argue with Jerry Saltz for a while and then you you realize you can't spend your mornings doing that anymore <laughs> right. and then you block him <laughs> <laughs>
1: you, you gotta have some hours in the day to do other things that's right, right that's right exactly Well, it was great having you over. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great to talk. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can leave a review and a rating at iTunes. It really helps the podcast. And you can find more images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast and you can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net and on Instagram at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro, Lullatone for the intro outro music and many thanks to all you listeners for your support. Make sure to check out the New York Studio Schools Marathon Programs grab some golden paint and get some stretchers and panels made by Baron Arts.